Our reading is from John's Gospel, chapter 2, 1 to 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 80 to 120 litres. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have drunk too much. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for reading. Uh, Do keep that passage open. Uh, Good to be getting into our new series this morning in John's Gospel. Uh, These uh, signs that John describes for us that give us a glimpse of of glory and help us to put our trust and our confidence in the one who displays that glory. Well, as we uh, come uh, to take up, as it were, ringside seats at this particular event, let's pray that we would not just glimpse God's glory, but that we would uh, find ourselves putting our trust, our confidence in the one who displays that glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are created for glory. And we're sorry when our eyes uh, get drawn to those things that are fading and frothy rather than weighty and truly glorious. Please help us to see Jesus this morning in this story that points to him and reveals his glory so that we might gladly and confidently put our hope and trust in him and enjoy that life that he offers us uh, through him. And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Good. Well, this has to, I think this has to be one of the easiest sermons uh, to preach. Why? Well, because the preacher hasn't got to spend hours and hours working out what this story is all about. Look down at verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs uh, through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what are these signs? Well, they are signs that point us, uh, they reveal the glory of Jesus. Uh, his unique godness. His brilliance, his, his power, uh, his weightiness, literally, in a world desperate for substance rather than spin. 
And how are we to respond uh, to that glory as we see it in these signs? Well, for those who first glimpsed it, his disciples, it resulted in them believing in Jesus, putting their, their trust, their confidence in him. And if we think, well, we weren't there, we weren't there at those ringside seats to see glory, uh, we can't be expected to respond in the same way. Notice how John ends his gospel, um, uh, John chapter 20. Jesus performed many other signs uh, in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe. That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has written these, these signs down, described them so that those who weren't there, and that's all of us, I think, uh, may glimpse the glory of Jesus and put our faith and trust in him and find real life through him. And uh, notice too that these uh, uh, miracles are called signs. They point, as Ellen said, away from themselves. So seeing and appreciating the sign uh, isn't the sum goal of why John wrote what he wrote. But it is experiencing what the sign points to. So again, if you're heading on holiday this, uh, this week, uh, you're heading off to Bogner, say, and you see the first sign to Bogner, Stop the car, you pitch your tent by the sign. You have missed the point, haven't you? You've missed uh, the destination that the sign points to. And the destination of this sign that we're looking at this morning, as of all the signs, is that we might experience uh, the one it points to. We might savour him, enjoy the glory that he reveals so that we might trust him uh, and believe in him as we are connected to him. And let's be clear, uh, this believing and trust is a big deal, isn't it? Not least in the view of the massive claims that John has already made in his gospel about Jesus. Let me just remind you, chapter 1, verse 14, claim 1, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The one that John calls the word, the logos, the one who was uh, with God, the one who was God, has revealed himself in history. How? By becoming flesh, by becoming uh, a human being. The creator who made everything. Nothing that is made uh, it was not created by him, says John. The creator becomes a creature. If you've been around at the time, you could have bumped into him as you walked to the shops or picked up your morning paper. That's huge, isn't it? That's massive. Uh, but there's more. Uh, see, the second big claim John makes is that not only has God stepped into human history uh, visibly and tangibly, uh, touchably, he has come to reveal himself so that we might know him and know him personally. Uh, chapter 1, verse 12, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Wow, God turns up, not just to explain a few things about his world to us. No, he turns out that he comes, becomes human so that we might get to know him and experience intimate relationship with him. And they are huge claims, aren't they? And they change absolutely everything. And so the question has to be, what did these people see in John 2 that 
convinced them that he really was God in the flesh. Now, of course, we can look at these people and go, well, they were, they were kind of simple people, weren't they? They were kind of gullible people. They didn't have the science that we know. Uh, they were easily convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, God in flesh. But actually, I was thinking this week, uh, to convince a Jew that the creator of the universe had stepped into history, that would have taken compelling evidence, wouldn't it? See, they, they knew that he was transcendent, he was infinite. They knew that their temple, their great temple, could not contain God, much less a human being, a human body. So don't you think it required really compelling and serious and irrefutable, undeniable evidence for them to believe and to be convinced? So as we look at this event together in John 2, what was that evidence that convinced them, that they discovered uh, about this man that told them that he was the Messiah, he was God in the flesh, who'd come to offer them relationship. Let's have a look. It's not a complicated story, is it? Not complicated. On one level, Jesus takes ordinary water and instant, instantly turns it into top quality wine. And that is sufficient for those who see it uh, to logically trust Jesus. And John expects that when we are confronted with the same evidence written in his book, that we will respond in the same way as Jesus reveals his glory through this event. Well, three things I just want us to see uh, briefly this morning that uh, I think reveal Jesus' glory so that it will help us believe in him and trust him. Here's the first point. Jesus' glory revealed as he does something ordinarily impossible. Jesus' glory revealed as he does something ordinarily impossible. That's what makes it a pretty good sign, actually, isn't it? Think about it. Uh, what Jesus does, normal people can't do. And think about it. Jesus could have turned water into lots of things, couldn't he? He could have turned it into pure alcohol. That would be quite impressive, wouldn't it? And we might have tried to explain the chemistry, but he turned water into wine and the finest of wines now i'm no expert when it comes to wine i can't distinguish a bordeaux from a beaujolais a malbec from a merlot i've got a clue but i know you can't produce wine in the chemistry lab you need uh, the right conditions don't you? The, the right soil the right slopes hopefully volcanic soil apparently uh, sun the right barrels to store the stuff in is it ages over time I don't know anything about tannins, they jumped out at me. But I do know that producing fine wine is a pretty complicated process. And Jesus here does something extraordinary, something ordinarily impossible. He turns water into wine. And you could say he nails it, absolutely nails it. Well, the atheist might say, the skeptic might say, no way. What we know about chemistry makes this impossible. can't be done. But I think scientists like that are a bit confused. See, scientists can't tell us what is impossible. Now, bear with me this one. This might sound a bit strange, but they can only tell us what is ordinarily impossible. 
See, science works, doesn't it, by observing stuff in the world and describing what they see. And often they come up with laws, don't they, that describe what they see. So I could observe that if I put water into wine bottles and check on them later, they tend to stay water. And I might logically come up with some laws about water being put into wine bottles. But science can't prove it'll always be water, can it? Uh, C.S. Lewis famously uh, explains it like this. Imagine, for example, I put 5p into my bedside drawer today. And then tomorrow I put another 5p into my drawer by my bed. And on the third day you open up the drawer and what will you find? It's not hard. <laughs> Looking worried. You will find 10p. Ordinarily, you would find 10p, unless, of course, someone has tampered with the drawer. And so here, you've put water into jars, and ordinarily, you would expect there to be water. That's how the universe normally works. Unless someone tampers with the laws of chemistry. Now, of course, we don't have that power, do we, to, to tamper with the laws of chemistry, uh, the fundamental properties of our universe. But what about its creator? Uh, surely, if there's a God who's powerful enough to make a universe from nothing, I haven't got a problem with a God who can tamper the laws of chemistry and the way they ordinarily work. In fact, if you think about it, what better way to get our attention than to do something that is ordinarily impossible? And maybe you might call yourself a sceptic or a doubter. Maybe you as a Christian, have problems with these uh, miracles and a belief in a Jesus who can do this kind of stuff. But, you know, wouldn't you have more of a problem with someone who makes those great claims you've already thought about but was suspiciously unable to do anything that we couldn't do? Surely miracles are precisely what we ought to expect. Things that defy the ordinary and mess with the laws that we operate in and are confined by. Well, here Jesus reveals something of his identity, his glory, in doing what is ordinarily impossible. And these disciples, with their front row seats, they do the logical thing. They put their trust in Jesus. It's just a small detail. This is, uh, for anyone who thinks Christianity is anti-science, I love the way the miracle is affirmed through a blind tasting test. Uh, when the master of ceremonies samples the wine Jesus has miraculously produced, uh, he isn't told, is he, where it comes from or what Jesus has done. He's not expecting the extraordinary, is he? Just something very ordinary. And yet what, what he experiences blows him away, and the response is powerful. It's convincing conclusive testimony of what Jesus has done. Jesus reveals his glory by doing something extraordinary, something ordinarily impossible. Second, Jesus' glory revealed by doing something wonderfully positive. This is one of the things that particularly struck me this week as I was thinking about the story. Jesus messes with the, the normal laws of chemistry and we are confronted with an outcome that is surprisingly wonderful and positive. Something excessively good. I often talk to people that if they were to believe in God, the kind of God they imagine, 
is a god more likely to turn wine into water than water into wine? A god more likely to spoil life than to offer life to the full? I was talking to a young guy recently, Cafe Nero, uh, when he found out what I did. He acknowledged that at some point in the future he might want to think about this God question, but only after he'd maxed out on life first. In other words, his, his view was, life is just great right now, and why would I want to spoil it by adding Jesus to the mix? It's a common idea, isn't it? Uh, the painter Van Gogh had that idea, didn't he, when he painted this painting? So I've shown it before, I think you've seen it before. But the painting is of a Bible opened. Opened, apparently, the book of Isaiah, if you look very carefully. And next to it is a book that's closed. That book is called Joie de Vivre, Joy of Life. And behind that book, the Bible, there's an extinguished candle. Point's obvious, isn't it? Van Gogh is saying, take God, take his word seriously, and it will rob you of everything good in life. You can kiss joy and life goodbye. But here, actually, in this story, Jesus is the life and soul of the party. Uh, far from pouring water on a celebration of love and life, he's the one making the wine flow. And the striking thing is, Jesus didn't just step in to produce the necessary as his party's about to hit the skids. He produces the, the best wine and loads of it. And again, John draws us to that point, doesn't he, as he shows how Jesus breaks with convention and custom. The convention is that you produce the best wine in the beginning, when people are compostmentous. When they got a bit doolally, then you kind of brought out the Asda stuff. The stuff that comes in boxes rather than bottles. Uh, four for a tenner. Of course, Jesus could have saved the party, couldn't he, by doing that? Producing some very adequate but ordinary plonk. But he, the stuff he miraculously creates turns to be, out, turns to be the sort of Chateau Lafitte in 1869, £50,000 a pop. And he didn't just produce a couple of bottles, did he? He produced stuff, so it was running, it was flowing, and the party kept going for days. Well, here isn't someone to avoid and ignore if we want to experience life and joy. He is the one who's the key to it. And I wonder whether we discovered that this morning. Perhaps you're a bit like the bloke that I met, Cafe Nero. Life stretching ahead of you. Wondering if Jesus might spoil life, suck the joy out of life. Or be that true source of life. Here's the sign, isn't it, that points to the answer. Jesus reveals his glory by doing something wonderfully positive. And third, finally... Jesus reveals his glory by revealing his astonishing mission. Well, the observant here might have noticed that the, this miracle of water into wine, into the greatest wine, actually echoes something that God had been promising to do for centuries, even before Jesus arrived. Uh, back in the prophecy of Isaiah, God himself spoke of a feast that the Lord himself would provide feast of richest food, great banquet, the finest of wines. And Isaiah's prophecy reaches a great crescendo as we discover that that feast is none other than a wedding feast. A wedding banquet that celebrates the wedding between the Lord and his 
people. And at the heart of that celebration, we find the Lord, the bridegroom, rejoicing over his bride. And I think this water into wine miracle, the key is not about the bottles of wine produced, but this marriage that Jesus is anticipating and pointing us to. Point's not ultimately the wine, but the wedding Jesus has come to arrange between himself and his bride. I don't think I'm imagining this, uh, what's in the story here, but actually it's something that pops up again and again in John's Gospel. Let me just give you a couple of examples. John chapter 3. John the Baptist identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. And he says, I'm the best man. The one whose job, as it were, is to announce Jesus and then get off the stage. And then even more powerfully and wonderfully, I think, in John chapter 4, we have this extraordinary encounter with a woman at a well. Do you remember when the disciples find Jesus talking to this woman at the well, they are surprised. Actually, they're a bit scandalized. Why? Well, it's a well. What happens at wells? Well, we, if you read the Bible, you know what happens at wells. It's the, it's the hookup place. It's the place where you meet uh, your dates. Perhaps your marriage partner. Happened for Jacob. Happened for Isaac. Happened for Moses. And if you remember that conversation Jesus has, it touches, doesn't it, on the subject of marriage. Go and get your husband, Jesus tells her. Now, of course, this woman's had five husbands. And the bloke that she's with now is not actually her husband. So this woman's life speaks of disappointment, disillusionment. Perhaps that's why she's living with the guy rather than marrying the sixth. But how does that encounter end? With the woman uh, rushing back to the town she comes from saying, I've met a man. One who claims to be the Messiah, God's king, who's offering relationship that can truly quench my thirst for joy, intimacy, and love. See, this transformed wine here is it's just a sign. But do you see the glorious reality that it points to? This marriage, this, this covenant relationship with the one who is the ultimate bridegroom. The one whose love never disappoints, never fails. Who provides for his bride, delights in her, and offers her overflowing love and life. I wonder if you've realised that's what Jesus came to, to give us. Not wine ultimately, but a, a relationship of such closeness. The only way he can be described in the Bible really is in that picture of marriage. He comes to be the bridegroom. Uh, not the headmaster who comes to award house points and detentions. Uh, not the, the landlord offering a contract, inspecting how we're doing and seizing our deposit if we mess up. But a bridegroom coming with a proposal of relationship. A, a marriage literally made in heaven. Uh, a, a level of closeness and commitment that is nothing short of glorious. We take our breath away. Well, as we finish, just one very crucial detail as we finish. Uh, have you noticed, as Jesus uh, is asked for help, 
His response is very strange, isn't it? Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Yes, Jesus does act, doesn't he, here? Uh, but he's thinking, isn't he, about a future moment uh, in his mission when his plans to act, to, to save the day, to step in where others have messed up and failed, will happen and take place. And Jesus will keep speaking about this hour coming in the future until the night before he dies, he prays these words to his father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And here's the point. This wonderful promise of, of relationship, of marriage, is only possible as Jesus steps in to provide, not wine, but his very life, his blood, to bear the sin and failure of this rebellious and broken world. And if we grasp the significance of that moment, that hour, we will know it is the moment of glory. That the moment we see Jesus most clearly and most wonderfully as our, as our sin bearer. The one who humbly takes on our failure on himself and becomes sin for us. And allows us to enjoy the full credit of what he's done. Do you notice in the, in the story just how when the master of ceremonies realises this is the best wine, he doesn't know, does he? where it's come from, and he, he praises the, the failed bridegroom. <laughs> Great stuff, and I fancy doing that, leaving the best wine alone. Well, he didn't do it, did he? It was Jesus, but Jesus is happy for him, as it were, to glory in the credit. So, amazing. That's what Jesus does as he dies on the cross. He takes our sin and we get the credits. In that famous meal before he dies with his friends, he speaks, doesn't he, of wine flowing. And he points us, doesn't he, to that blood that will flow as he's pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, punished for our peace, and wounded for our healing. And we're about to remember that, aren't we, as we take wine, as we drink wine together. But Jesus also on that same night spoke of a future day when the wine would flow. As he promises to drink anew with us wine at that great wedding feast. Where we're not only guests, but his beloved and perfect bride. What a, what a glorious day. What a glorious saviour. Savior. What a glorious God to believe in. And to trust. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. This is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing in him, have life in his name. Father, we pray that as we see something of what this sign points to, and as we do that over these coming Sundays, please 
Help us to see the glory of Jesus. That we might believe and put our full trust and confidence in him. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.